0: before you we thank you for a chance to come here and fellowship joy just being able to see each other than the encouragement that we can get from that god we we thank you and we praise you that that you love us and you want us to know you you have given us you truly and i ask when we open up your word through this uh Sometimes difficult and confusing. Help us to have understanding and wisdom and discernment. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is our fourth dive into the book of Job. So halfway through this, we are going to halfway through this series. So it's, a, it's an interesting book. Isn't it? Um, I know that before I picked up this book to uh, start studying it and preparing the messages, I would find everything that I ended up more fascinating and and filled with wisdom than I understood at the time. Am I cutting in and out? Oh no! Let me check. Things are telling me. Well, if I keep cutting in and out, am I still? When I turn my head, weird. Ah, oh, boy! If I can't, if I keep my head still, guys, you know that I can't even keep it still. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a really interesting time. I'll try nevertheless. Turn my shoulders every time I turn my head. There we go. Well. In order for us to be able to meet uh understand where we're at with Job, it really helps us to understand the the background of Job. For those of us who uh might not remember, Job we're introduced to in the very beginning of the book. The first couple chapters, we get a perspective from and from the author himself. And we hear and we find out that Job is a righteous and a blameless man who fears God and shuns evil. In fact, he does so so much that when God has an assembly of angels and Satan comes, the the accuser comes to God, God points out Job and says, look at Job. He is righteous and blameless. He fears God and shuns evil like no one else in the world does. Then a trial begins to ensue but not necessarily the trial that most people think. Let's see whether or not you remember uh, the question, the answer to who is on trial. Can you tell me who's on trial? God's on trial. Who's on trial? Oh, come on. One more time. I want to actually hear your voice. Who's on trial? There we go. God's on trial. It helps us to remember this. Because Satan, the accuser, he doesn't respond to God when he says, this righteous and blameless man. Oh man, is this still given out? Oh, you guys, I'm so embarrassed. Tell you what, I'm just going to have two microphones. Here we go. See how that works out. God says, or Satan doesn't say, God, I think you're wrong. Job is actually a really wicked guy. He doesn't question that. Rather, he accuses God. He says, does Job Job fear God for nothing? He says, of course Job is going to worship you. You're bribing him and blackmailing him. You're saying that Job will get good things if he worships you. Bribery. And Job is afraid that if he stops worshiping you, he's going to get bad stuff coming to him in life. Blackmail. Blackmail. He says, apart from this, there is no reason that even this one guy, Job, that you say is more righteous than anyone else in the earth. There is no way that he would ever worship you if you took away your blessings and if you gave him curses. And so God says, fine, let's put Job to the test. Job is not on trial. God is on trial and he loses everything. Absolutely everything. He goes from being the richest man in the East with 10 kids and perfect health down to having nothing. And all of his kids dying in a single disaster. And he loses all of his health. And so three of his friends come. And the best thing that they do is sit in silence with him and not say a single word. The best comfort that they could have given. But then they open their mouths. And the first one to speak is Eliphaz. Eliphaz comes to Job and over the course of three separate speeches, we see how he presents two theologies, two understandings of God that you probably have heard a lot of times before, but really don't fit together. First, he says, man is totally depraved. Man is completely wicked before God and your righteousness counts as nothing. And on the other hand, he says, God wants your repentance. He wants you to be moral. He wants you to be upright. And if you do that, then God is going to stop punishing you and he is going to save you and he is going to give you good things again. And his words come with an accusation. Because whenever you say that God is giving you good things or bad things in life based on your... Uh, based on your morality, then whenever life goes poorly for you, you can say that God must be unhappy with you. And that's what Eliphaz is saying. But on a deeper level, he is trying to give Job comfort that is no comfort at all. Because you see, when you're faced with a God of infinite holiness, you can't turn around and say, if only you try hard enough, if only you promise to do better, if only you just try to control your sin a little bit more, even if you do, your sins of the past remain. And faced with a God of infinite holiness, there is no way you can bring about your own salvation. Your only hope is that that infinitely holy God is also an infinitely merciful God. The only hope that you can have is to throw yourself on His mercy. And not rely on yourself, not rely on your own strength, not look at yourself and say, God will be happy with me if I am good enough to earn it. And then we looked last week at the words of Zophar. If Eliphaz gave a comfort that is no comfort at all, Zophar gave Job a hope that is no hope at all. He tries to present a solution. He says, basically, the health and wealth gospel. He says to Job, Job, something's wrong. I'm not saying necessarily that God is personally punishing you, but God wants first and foremost and above all, He wants morality out of you. And so He has made the world to respond positively to your goodness and negatively to your badness. And so if you want God, you want to have an easier life, start sinning less. Start praying more, and I guarantee your life will get better. And it sounds good on the face of it. Except this comes with an idea that you have a hope that is not actually any hope at all. Because you can turn around and you can speak to someone who says, if you are suffering, pray more. If you are still suffering, you're not praying hard enough. Or maybe there's still some other sin in your life. Except this is simply not the way the world works. Because there are good people who have a lot of wealth and power and safety. And there are bad people who have nothing. But there are also very wicked people who on this earth are very rich, very safe, very secure. They have a great legacy. And there are really godly people who have nothing. There just is no correlation. There is no connection between how easy your life is and how good of a person you are. And if you pretend that there is, you're relying on a false hope. But we do have a hope. We do have a hope that God would one day resurrect us. That He would give us a new life. That is our hope, as we talked about last week. And now we come to Bildad. And Bildad has a different kind of theology. The theology of Bildad is not so much that God is personally punishing you and nitpicking your life. It's not so much the theology of Zophar that God has just created the world like a clockmaker and he has set the system so that being good, it's like like a, a, a jukebox. You press the right buttons and the good stuff comes out or the bad stuff comes out. The theology of Bildad is a little bit different. He says in Job chapter 18, let me read it for you. Job chapter 18, verse 20. Towards the end of his speech, his second speech, Bildad is going through a list and talking about all the ways that God punishes people. He talks about how God will take away your possessions. He will take away your life. He will take away the memory of you. He'll take away all these things and he'll just make life so miserable. And then he concludes it with what happens at the end, the purpose for God doing this. He says in verse 20 of chapter 18, people in the West are appalled at their fate. People in the East are horrified. They will say this was the home of a wicked person, the place of one who rejected God. You see what he's saying? Bildad's theology is that God punishes people in order to make examples of them. God wants people to be good, and so when someone gets really bad, He says, I'm going to hurt them so badly that everyone else will look at them and they will fear Me. They will say, I don't want God to do that to me, and so I'm going to hurt this person and everyone else is going to be afraid of doing wickedness. And He has an application for Job. He says in chapter 8, starting in verse 2, Bildad says, how long will you go on like this? You sound like a blustering wind. Does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? Your children must have sinned against him. So their punishment is well deserved. But if you pray to God and seek the favor of the Almighty, and if you are pure and live with integrity, he will surely rise up and restore your happy home. And though you started with little, you will end with much. He adds a little bit of incentive there, but his message is clear. Everything that happened to Job was deserved, was earned. It was God's punishment. And the only hope that Job has is to try to live a better life and hope that God will be merciful to him. He says, things got bad for you but your children got it worse. Let them serve as a warning to you and repent now so you don't get something worse like your kids did. And then he even has the nerve to say, and God will restore your happy home after you've lost 10 kids. What a what a heartless thing to say to a man. The theology of Bildad, his understanding of God, presents God as someone who says, I want you to be good people. I want you to be moral and upright people. And I'm going to motivate you toward that righteousness through fear. As he says in his final short speech on Pet chapter 25, he says, God is powerful and dreadful. He enforces peace in the heavens. Who is able to count his heavenly army? Doesn't his light shine on all the earth? How can a mortal be innocent before God? How can anyone born of a woman be pure? God is more glorious than the moon. He shines brighter than the stars. In comparison, people are maggots. We mortals are mere worms. This is his understanding of the world. He says God wants you to be a good person. He wants you to be a righteous person and he will motivate you through fear. Now, Job, after his final speech, goes through a big, long five chapter um, defense of himself which are going to summarize for you. Job basically says, I'm going to maintain my integrity. In chapter 27, verse 5, he says, I will never concede that you are right. I will defend my integrity until I die. I will maintain my innocence without wavering. My conscience is clear for as long as I live. He says, you guys are trying to say that I must have done something to deserve all of this, but I didn't. And you're not going to convince me otherwise. There has to be a different reason than what you guys are saying. And in his defense, over the five chapters, five to six chapters of his defense, he says for the first half, he speaks to Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz. He says, I know the things that you know. You're trying to talk to me like you're saying something brand new and you're trying to educate me. I know these things. You're telling me that God is sovereign. I know that God is sovereign. I know He is powerful. I know what He can do, whatever He wants. says, so you're trying to tell me that God judges the wicked? I know that God is a just God. I know that He does not like wickedness. He is not condone sin. He is not... Fine with you just living however you want and hurting other people and sinning it up. He says, I know that this is true. He says, you're trying to tell me to seek God and fear God for wisdom. He says, I know that fearing God brings wisdom. I know all of these things that you're trying to tell me as if I don't know them. He says, I know them. And then in chapter 29, he talks about his life before Job chapter one, before all of this happened, Job says, guys, listen to me. There was a time when I was blessed by God and I was protected by God. And it wasn't as if I, I didn't deserve it according to the, the standards that you are setting. He says, I was an honest man. I was a righteous man. I didn't have any secret sins. He says, I wasn't a guy who took my position, my power, my authority. And I didn't abuse people. I protected them. I didn't make demands from people. I served them. And he says, I I used to think like you did. Jove even gives evidence that he seemed to in the past think just like Bildad and Zophar he had an understanding of God that seemed to be very similar because he said because I was so good and I was getting blessing I thought there was a connection between the two I expected blessing and I received blessing and he says nothing changed in my life I didn't get any secret sins that came along I didn't secretly worship any idols. I didn't start oppressing people. I didn't lie. I didn't lust. I didn't have anything that changed in my life, my lifestyle. It was consistent when in my life, my following and worshiping God when all of this came along. He says, "Now God has judged me and I have lost everyone's respect. And I've done what you have told me to do already. I have prayed to God. I have begged Him for mercy. I've obeyed Him. And I thought that maybe things would turn around, but they didn't. Things only got worse. I only got more judgments. And so Job cries out to God in response to Bildad. He cries out, and in chapter 9, he says, make sure i got the right thing. God does not restrain His anger. Chapter 9, verse 13. God does not restrain His anger. Even the monsters of the sea are crushed beneath His feet. So, who am I that I should try to answer God or even reason with Him? Even if I were right, I would have no defense. I could only plead for mercy. And even if I summoned Him and He responded, I'm not sure He would listen to me. says so there's no way that I can actually defend myself against God. I have no hope of mounting a defense as if I can change God's mind. And then he says in chapter 9, verse 27, if I decided to forget my complaints, to put away my sad face and be cheerful, I would still dread all the pain, for I know you will not find me innocent, O God. Whatever happens, I will be found guilty. So what's the use of trying? Even if I were to wash myself with soap and to clean my hands with lie, you would plunge me into a muddy ditch and my own filthy clothing would hate me. He says, God, if you are the God of Bildad, I can't just turn my life around and try to, to, to make myself a better person and expect that you are going to, to, to bless me and make my life better. I can't defend myself against you, even if I'm innocent. And even if I try to put on this cheerful face that, that my friends are telling me to, God, you have already declared me judged. I'm under your judgment. And Job cries out, to this god saying if you are indeed the god of bildad if you are a god that rules through judgment and through blackmail and through fear and if as it seems you are you are so impulsive that even though i know i'm innocent you are judging me you bless me one moment and you curse me the next and i don't even know how i'm supposed to act in order to make my life better then yes he says i am very much afraid of you god Congratulations, God, you have made me afraid. But he doesn't have hope. Now, I want to talk about the fear of God, because the fear of the Lord is something that we see many times in the scripture in a very positive light. It appears 20 times in the Old Testament, the phrase fear of the Lord. Psalms 111 says it is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 10 says, if you have the fear of the Lord, it will prolong your life. Proverbs 16 says that if you have the fear of the Lord, fearing God will turn people from evil. It's effective. You tell people that they're going to be judged for their sins and they will turn from evil. It it helps with that. It is effective. In fact, Just before the people entered the promised land in his final sermon, Moses said to Israel, if you obey the law, there will be blessings. If you disobey, there will be curses. And it's fascinating to look and see the ratio proportion. He says Moses gives 14 verses of blessings for obedience, but he gives 54 verses of curses for what would happen if Israel disobeyed. So the fear of the Lord is very much so present in the Old Testament as a motivator for obeying and not disobeying, right? What about the New Testament? Fear is mentioned here as well. It's mentioned in a a, a positive light, talking about the motivating people to respond positively to God 20 times, as much as in the Old Testament. We see after Acts of God, where God brings His judgment, that people fear in response. We see in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to submit to one another out of the fear of God. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about his own motivation. He says, Because we fear God's judgment for you, that drives us to want to help you to live well because we don't want you to come under God's judgment. So the fear of God the Bible does clearly say, I want to be absolutely clear about this. God says through the Scripture that He accepts the worship of those who worship Him because of fear. He does accept this. I'm not saying if, if your primary reason for following God, for worshiping Him is because of fear, that's acceptable. God will accept your worship even if it is motivated by fear. And sometimes that may be what you need. You may be at a point in life where you need the fear of God instilled into you so you can just start following Him, start trusting Him. And He says, that's fine. We'll start you off on following me out of fear. But that's not His end goal. That is not what He desires from you. That is not His best for you. You see, there's a problem with incentivizing people to obey through fear. The law uses fear to motivate you to obey. But while it talks, you can find throughout the scripture, instance after instance, example after example of God saying, if you obey, I will bless you. And if you disobey, I will curse you. You can find lots of instances about that. But you will never find a promise in the scripture that if you relate to God through the law, that you will have a purse, a close personal relationship, an intimate relationship with your God. Israel related to God through the law. Hundreds of years after Babylon, they formed a way where they were, they developed a whole system, a way of following law, God so they would never break the law. And when Jesus came and he started talking about God as a daddy, as someone that you can have an intimate relationship with, they were astonished because the law didn't give any room for that. You see, you can make someone obey through fear. If you rule over a person through fear so that they are are afraid of ever stepping out of line with you of what would come, you can make them a very obedient person, someone who does whatever you want them to do. You can do that. But fear does not lead to an intimate relationship of love and trust. And that's really inter- That's key. Good people with good motivations can rule through fear. But what's interesting is so can the wicked. There are many wicked people in the world who also rule Through fear. But you know what's fascinating? Wicked people, evil people, will never be able to build a long-term relationship based on love and trust. They do not have access to that. They have access to fear, but they do not have access to long-term relationships, a healthy relationship based on love and trust. Only goodness can do that. Only faithfulness and love And that is how God wants to relate to you. He can relate to you through fear. But he wants to relate to you through trust. He doesn't want you to obey because there's a to-do list and you have to do this, you have to do that. He wants you to do what you do because you love him. Because you trust that what he says is what's best for you. And Job says this in chapter 9 verses 33 through 35. He cries out to God, if only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. The mediator could make God stop beating me. And I would no longer live in terror of His punishment. Then I could speak to Him without fear. But I cannot do that in my own strength. Job had known what it was like to relate to God through an idea of just solely based on law and solely based on fear. And out of his fear, he cried out for a solution, for a better way. He said, God, is there no one who can stand as an arbiter, a mediator between you and me? Because I feel if I try to talk to you, that you will at best ignore me and at worst punish me more for my insolence in speaking up, raising my hand. He says, if only there was someone who can stand between us, who can prevent you from hurting me so that I can talk to you without fear. You get where I'm going with this? You and I have that hope. We have an advocate. We have a mediator who has satisfied the wrath of God. In 1 John... Chapter 2, the Apostle John tells us, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice, the propitiation. Propitiation meaning the one who has satisfied the wrath of God. And not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. We have an advocate. We have a mediator. We have a hope in the face of the judgment that we deserve before God as those who already have broken the law, who already are lawbreakers. He says we have hope. God is our judge, judge, executioner. And we deserve, if we want to relate to him through law, through our own effort, we want to say, God, look at me. You should accept me because I am not sinning and I'm really trying my best. He says, I don't judge you based on try. What does Yoda say? Do or do not, there is no try. Someone laughed. Thank you. He could relate to us as our judge, jury, and executioner. But he says, I want to relate to you. I can and I want to relate you as the arbiter as the mediator as your redeemer who buys you as your advocate we have the best mediator between us and the wrath of God possible and that is God himself that is our hope we can relate to God through fear and if that is the way that you have to come to God so be it he will accept that but in first John chapter four, verses sixteen through eighteen, when he's speaking about being in fellowship with God as believers, he tells us an amazing truth. He says, God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. In this, love is made complete. With us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. You can relate to God out of fear. You can relate to God out of the do's and the don'ts and the, I have to do this because God said that I I have to. And and if I don't do this, then then my relationship with God is at stake. And I, 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 I better keep trying because otherwise something is terribly wrong between me and God. But we don't have to relate to him through fear. We can relate to him through love and through trust. And that is the better way. And so I ask you, why is it that you follow God? Do you follow Him because of fear? When you obey God or when you you sin, are you worried that your suffering might be because God is judging you? Do you obey God because you're afraid that you might go to hell if you don't obey Him enough or if you sin too many times? Are you acting as if you're Relationship with God effectively is determined by how righteous you are? Do you obey God because He says, do this, do that, don't do that? Because God demands it? Or do you even say things that sound really spiritual like, after all God did for you, how could you dare not? Jesus Christ did so much for you. How dare you? Do you relate to God out of fear? Or do you relate to God out of love? Because in the Last Supper, Jesus connected love and obedience. He said, The one who loves me will keep my commandments, and the one who keeps my commandments loves me, Jesus said to his disciples. Do you follow Him because He paid for your sins and your relationship depends on His faithfulness changing you and not on your own faithfulness? Do you follow Him because He made you into His child and through the Spirit we cry out to God, Daddy, you're my daddy and I'm safe in your arms. And so even when I fall down, I know that I am still your child. And I can come back to you. Do you follow him because he already declared you to be righteous? He justified you. He said, you are righteous. You are perfect in my eyes. And I'm not just playing pretend. I have actually changed who you are from the moment you believed in me. And you are righteous. Even if you don't always act like it. You are righteous. It is who you are. And so when you obey, you obey not out of fear that maybe you aren't righteous, but you obey because this is who you truly are and you trust in the Word of God. Best yet, I just love this. I have to say this. I can't close. Ephesians chapter 2. God says that, that, Paul says that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised him up. He raised Jesus up and seated him high above all authority and powers and dominions and gave him a name that is above every name. And then in the very next chapter, mere verses later, he says, and God the Father also, even when you were dead in your trespasses, he raised you up and seated you where? With Christ in the heavenly places. This is true of you if you have trusted him. So, friends, when we obey, we don't obey because we're afraid our relationship with God is no longer at risk anymore because it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on our needing to fear what will happen. We obey because we know we are safe in the love of God. And that, a relationship built on love and trust, is better than fear. And if you are relating to God through fear, that's fine if that's where God, if that's what you need right now. But I would ask you to begin to see the love of God in a deeper, more profound way, because that is how he wants you to know him. And one day when you are in the resurrected life, this is the only way that any of us will know him. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Jesus, we do praise you. We thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your love. We thank You that we don't have to relate to You through fear. We don't have to come to You and hope that maybe You won't be disgusted with us because of how we've acted the past week. We don't have to come to You and say, Oh God, are You going to even listen to me after what I've done? We can live safe and secure in the knowledge and the trust of your love for us. And when we obey, you have made a way for us to live in obedience because of love and not out of fear. Because God, perfect love does drive out fear and that is what you want for us. Help us to understand your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.